Well, first, though, this is a story that has been in the news for the past couple of days. You know, our grandfather, father and all them, they had some really hard feelings about what that happened at that time. And to have streets named after him was very upsetting to them. Joseph Trutch, B.C.'s first lieutenant governor, who died in 1904, was considered an extreme racist, even for his era. The comments that he made referred to First Nations people as ugly, savages. That was Jordan Armstrong, Global News reporter. He was doing uh, covering this story yesterday. It's the idea of changing the name of Trutch Street in Vancouver because it is named after Joseph Trutch again. And you got a little bit there, a bit of a glimpse into his past. But how easy or how difficult is it to actually change a street name? Let's bring on Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr to talk a bit more about this. Councillor Carr, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Uh, and obviously, in the in the grand scheme of things, and a bit later on in the program, we're going to hear a bit more from the chief of the Kamloops Band. She spoke with media earlier today. The grand scheme of things, dealing with what we're dealing with, with the discovery in Kamloops, there are other issues that obviously need to be addressed. But this is one that has come back to the forefront and is being discussed. The mayor of Vancouver saying he supports the idea of changing the name. I know you used to be, or uh, what were the council to the Civic Asset Naming Committee. Uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit more. Is How easy or difficult is it to change a street name? It's difficult. It's difficult because obviously street names are used by so many people um, and so many services, including all the emergency services, the postal services, and, um, you know, let alone everybody's you know, getting mail and everything else from a personal level. So um, our engineering department has to get involved, fire and rescue, uh, the police service. Um, So, you know, it isn't an easy process, but it's doable. And is it with what we're talking about now and part of the story, too, when when Jordan was reporting on this yesterday, the people he was speaking to with the Musqueam band made a point of saying, look, our our homes are very close to the street. It's it's hurtful to see this street name, to pass by this street name. Does the reasoning or the argument for why the street name uh, should be changed? How much does that play into the decision making process on actually changing it? Uh, well, I've never been um, in a situation where there has been a request for a street name, so this is a first. Um, but for me, I'm putting this in the context of the fact that our city, Vancouver, um, was the first city in, in Canada to declare itself a city of reconciliation. And that is, um, I think, uh, a real commitment to do business differently and to um, build relationships in a new way. And as we're seeing, you know, um, through the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and um, really the rise of, in, uh, of Indigenous concerns and issues, uh, you know, there, there is a really important point now where we have to rethink some of the decisions we've made in the past. And, um, and so I'm supportive of the idea of um, if there is a request that's come forward from the Indigenous people within Vancouver saying, you know, there's naming of things in the landscape um, that are reminders of a really painful and tragic and full of prejudice period in our history that we should rectify the wrong.
Is it different when we're talking about this, though? Like you said, it is a difficult process to change a street name. And I understand, too, I, I don't want that to come across as to suggest that the inconvenience of people that live on a street is anywhere the same as the hurt that has been caused by the people whom the street is named after. But is there something else? What came to mind, and again, this is in no way the same, but I remember when they wanted to change, I think it was Abbott Street to Pat Quinn Way and realized actually changing a street name is a hugely complicated issue. So they kind of put it over top and made it a, a symbolic street name dedicated to that to that person. Do you think, is there a way to do this without forcing everybody on the street to change their address, to, to have land titles have to change, to, to, to kind of set that, that ball in motion and open it up so any other number of streets might also then be changed? You know, I'm not going to be able to answer that question because I think the grievance is really coming from the Aboriginal community within Vancouver. And so um, I think that uh, any kind of motion that might come forward to change the street name is going to start um, with discussions with the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh, whose lands this city is is on, uh, and uh, traditional lands that were unceded. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would look to guidance from them, their elders, um, their leadership, and uh, discussions within their community, sharing that information and their perspective uh, with us as a city, and uh, then um, uh, to move forward, working through the actual bureaucracy of uh, of changing a name. And that would mean everything from, you know, consultation with engineering and, as I said, police, fire, emergency services, postal services, etc. Um, and, you're, and you're absolutely right, too, and title office. Um, so, you know, um, is it the right way to go? Let's have the discussion first. If the request is made and the decision, uh, and I would respect the decision of uh, the Indigenous people here in, in our city, um, that then then we work through the process. Um, maybe, you know, somebody can start fi- figuring out exactly how that, you know, what the steps are to that. It's good to know what that process is, how much time it might take. Um, but we start first with, is it the right decision to make, um, given we are a city of reconciliation, given the hurtfulness um, that has been experienced by Indigenous communities historically and even present day, um, make the decision, work through the process. Uh, and so in your time then on that council committee, so and you mentioned this, so did, it never came forward or, or you're not aware of other uh, requests made to change street names? Well, the Pat Greenway, you have already raised, but there was a solution because it was a new name, not the change of a, yeah, it was a new name and it was to be for part of the street. Um, how it came up in terms of, of that particular circumstances, it's very, very, um, it was stated to us, it's very difficult uh, to have a continued street partially changed um, in terms of its name. And so the resolution was found in terms of just putting the name on the street signs, as, you, as you've already noted. Um, in, in this case, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to seek the guidance, first of all, of the people involved who want the change and, uh, as to what would be the best solution. And then um, from emergency services and all the other agencies, what the challenges are and how difficult it might be. But sometimes, you know, Jill, Things are difficult um, because they haven't been done before or because they're complicated and they might take a long time, but it, it shouldn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it. 
Um, it's, you know, if, if there's a right end goal, I would hope we could find a way that is less difficult to get there. Um, but if it is difficult, so be it. Uh, and I would imagine, too, if we're looking at this, part of the reason maybe that we haven't seen this happen in the past is because it is so complicated. It seems like the process to to something like take a racist name off a school or another mm-hmm. building or something like that is far easier. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. You're just talking about, you know, signs on, on one point on the ground, um, not on a continuous, uh, you know, in a, in a continuous path with many layers of agencies that rely on that that kind of naming. So, of course, this is going to be more complicated. Um, But as I say, you know, just because something is complicated doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it and doesn't mean that there can't be, um, you know, a decision made that it is the right thing to do. Therefore, you know, we we just have to figure out how to do it in 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 a sort of less difficult way. Uh, so how do you see this uh, coming forward then with the mayor saying he supports this idea? I think he said he was going to bring a motion forward. Uh, the motion would come to council. What would be the process at that point? You know, it would be assigned, I would imagine, to the Civic Asset Naming Committee. Um, right now, uh, we are just in a stage of uh, reconstituting our committee. So the terms, which are two years for people to volunteer to sit on one of our advisory committees, the, that term, all those terms just ended. There's just been a new set of appointees to these committees. So um, we haven't had the first meeting of the of the new um, set of uh, volunteers serving on the Civic Asset Naming Committee. That's coming up soon. Um, and we haven't changed at this point any of the liaisons, so I'm assuming I'll still be a liaison to that committee. Uh, uh, but um, uh, when we have the first meeting, I'm sure it's going to be number one on the agenda. All right. We'll be watching to see what happens next. Uh, Councillor Carr, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thanks so much for your interest, Jill. We talked about this yesterday on the program with planner and architect Michael Geller, Public Art. And we got so many calls to the buzz line and email about this, not only from people in the False Creek South area, but people in general talking about art. And we want to talk about it again because the piece, in case you missed it yesterday, is called Boy Holding a Shark. And the sculpture is set to be installed, part of the Vancouver Biennale, and it would be a temporary piece of art that would stand about two and a half stories high, according uh, to those in the know. And it weighs about 1,200 kilograms. And there are concerns, not only with some saying that it's not what they like, but also also concerns that it might uh, have people stopping there to take pictures and that could cause crashes on the seawall. Those are just a couple of the concerns. Let's bring in Barry Mowat, founder and president and artistic director of the Vancouver Biennale. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, first, have you had this kind of reaction to any of the other pieces with the Biennale? Uh, almost uh, uh, every time, yes. There's always, <laughs> there's always been a reaction somehow uh, where neighbours don't want this installation that they anticipate in their front yard or backyard. So how do you deal with that when you have people that come out and say, wait a minute, nope, this doesn't, this doesn't fit here? <laughs> well, that's what part of the process that's going on right now is that the city of Vancouver uh, has, uh, and we have, we've had to distribute within the, the bylaws within two blocks of where any installation is going in to every household 
uh, information about the installation, and they then have the rights to uh, respond to city and such. And so um, it's been a bit more active this time because uh, a couple of individuals have taken taken it on personally, uh, have gone out there and actually put posters and such with misinformation, interestingly, and missizes and other other data, uh, encouraging people to stop this uh, this installation from occurring. But the process can continue through to June 14th, and then the city uh, public arts group uh, will review all the comments and such and make a determination from that point. Uh, so what's the misinformation? Because that was another reason I ran by there on Wednesday. And like you said, I saw the posters and there were actually a few people gathered around and they were talking about it. So what is the misinformation that's being circulated right now? Um, at one point, they, uh, well, they, they actually they created a little poster, which they put on site, which I saw the other day when I was there. Uh, and the poster didn't show the full, full height and, and uh, image of the work. So they had uh, indicated that it was 28 feet high. In actuality, it's uh, for a matter of a few feet. Uh, it's about 25 feet. And the, it's, not a, it's not the full height of the boy with sh- holding shark. It's actually uh, two parts. The lower part is like a lighthouse or like a big buoy that would be out floating in the water, and that's approximately 15 feet high. And then the buoy, who is approximately 9.5 feet high, is on top of that. So uh, the buoy is not the 28 feet high that they were suggesting or such. So, uh, and that's the new image. We just actually went out there and we reinstalled yesterday uh, at the site that current information. Okay. Is it possible they were adding the height of the, the, the piece of the seawall where it's going to stand and that the actual place where it's being located is elevated? Uh, that's possible. It's possible. Yeah, there, there were also comments about it's going to block my view. And if you, if you were there, you probably saw that there are evergreens behind it. And then there are 40-foot high deciduous behind that. So um, in certain times of year, there will certainly be a different view for people. But it's not a, it's not a, it's not obtrusive. It's actually narrower than narrower than the actually almost every other installation that we have about the city. <laughs> yeah, looking at it, I, I thought that one too. The the blocking of the view. Uh, I was looking at it, thinking mm, perhaps a better wording would be it would be incorporated in the view. I'm not sure it would completely block the view from any of the the apartments or condos in that spot. Um, what about the concerns? People are concerned that this is a blind corner, and if people stop to take a picture or see it more, it could lead to safety concerns on the seawall. <laughs> I think that's uh, an extreme position, uh, but uh, yeah, if you're not watching what you're doing, as you bump into somebody, it, you know it's it's the regular seawall, biking and the walking lane. So uh, you have to rely upon people's intelligence to, I guess, get out of out of the way of others. Um, but you don't have to photograph it strictly from being on the seawall. You can photograph it from um, other other sides, which give you more more opportunity. So I think that's again, it's another one of those don't want it in my neighborhood kind of thing. And so whatever rationales and reasons they can come up with, they will put forward.
I had a couple of people email me yesterday after we talked about this on the program and they were quite concerned after reading the description on the Biennale website uh, talking about this is uh, a piece that is supposed to uh, talk about the human's endless thirst for interest and expansion of destructive activities in the oceans and marine life, uh, including sharks, and concerned that the write-up about boy holding a shark didn't make any mention of shark finning, that it talked more about sea pollution and other things, global warming and things that are causing sharks to die, uh, but didn't talk about shark finning. Uh, Is that an issue? Do you think that that particular threat to sharks isn't mentioned in the write-up? No, nothing was intentional in terms of that. I think the the information on the website is basically to give people an idea of what is coming and what it is. Um, It's like all artwork, it has its own interpretation. You, the artist, everyone who sees it interprets it differently. My intent as a curator was really to focus on the fact that it's, it's highlighting the aspects of oceans. And uh, the, we're in the decade of oceans, according to UNESCO, and we're actually an affiliate with UNESCO around that ocean sciences and the decade of the oceans for the next 10 years. So it's really more about that. Yes, other issues if you look at the sculpture itself up closely, it does actually show stitching on a fin. So I suspect the artist had uh, a concern or question about that. So the whole objective of the the installation is really to capture people's attention. That's the focus of the Biennality. It's really about art as a catalyst, the catalyst to create dialogue, engagement, uh, social action. And certainly in advance of the writing, uh, it's doing all of those things. So we've never had so much... We've been getting a lot of feedback ourselves because the city asks that you respond to info at Vancouver Biennale as well as to the city's um, uh, email at publicart at vancouver.ca. So uh, it's most unusual for us to receive so many positive comments, and they're quite strong. And uh, it's just so I'm very happy with the fact that we're getting so much dialogue, and that's what this is meant to do along with all of our installations. A couple of people wrote yesterday as well asking who pays for the art installations as they make their way throughout the city. Where does the money come from? That's, that's really a good question because uh, that, that, you know, in 20 years in which we've been doing installation, it's misinformation about the uh, artwork being paid for by tax dollars is a misnomer. I don't, I think people just choose to jump on things. They get upset about something and they don't, totally read or inform themselves. Um, it does say on the information that we put out that there are no tax, no tax dollars involved. It's not City of Vancouver. The Vancouver Biennale is a charity, so we re- rely upon uh, the kindness of others, philanthropy, uh, government grants, uh, and the sale of different artworks uh, uh, with different artists that have been participants uh, in the Biennale. So it's uh, basically self-funded. All right. And just before I let you go, so as it stands now with Boy Holding a Shark, it's it's planning to come to this spot on, on South False Creek. How long will it stay at this spot or is there any chance it could be going to a different location? No, this is a location that's been curated for a number of reasons, but it's a temporary installation like most Biennale installations unless uh, someone comes forward and acquires the work and they then have to engage in negotiations with the city about where the final Uh, site may be but uh, it's temporary at this point for sure all right and when will it be installed 
good fortune in all things happening. We <laughs> hope to have it installed before the end of this month. All right. Well, that, what I'd like to be able to say with that is this is a very big month for the Biennale, and COVID has changed so many things in our lives that we will have three major installations happening this month. There's the really large uh, installation that starts next week under the south end of the Canby Street Bridge. It's a 450-foot-long wrapping uh, involving digital media, augmented realities, new technologies, uh, and that's going to take about three to four weeks to uh, install. So we encourage people to uh, go by and observe that. Uh, and then there's another small digital media work involved in augmented reality and virtual reality, which is on the ground flat uh, in Hinge Park. So it's a small circle area. Those, uh, those three uh, that I mentioned hopefully will all be installed by uh, mid-July. We are continuing the conversation about public art and looking now at those opposed to this particular sculpture, Boy Holding a Shark. There are now 596 signatures on a petition calling for the sculpture to not be installed on the south side of False Creek. Joining me now is Catherine Crow, a concerned resident in the area. Catherine, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. Uh, So what are your concerns about this sculpture? It's really not about the sculpture itself. It's about the appropriateness of the site. It's about the safety. And it's about the public consultation. So let's start with the appropriateness of this site. You think, I know a lot of people have said it's too high. What do you think is, why does it not fit there? Um, It is, as the Biennale says, it's almost eight meters high, or that's two and a half stories. Uh, it's out of scale with the surrounding plaza. It will bloom over the garden setting and take up over half of one of the plaza entrances with a 28-square-foot circular footprint. And I know that as well, safety concerns have been raised as far as it being a bit of a blind corner if people stop and are taking pictures or stop to talk about it. Is that one of your concerns as well? It's really the crossing of the bike lane so there are actually two blind corners it takes a a cyclist three and a half seconds to move through that blind corner to get um to the other to one of the three crosswalks um there are approximately 12 to 15 bikes per minute on average traveling in both directions and so it's difficult for um walkers to cross the bike path Uh, safely and we see that every weekend and it's not even summer yet when it's the walk and bike paths are just chock-a-block full. And so is the concern that more people would stop then because I mean you're not supposed to stop on the bike lane anyway. Correct you're not supposed to stop so but it's the walkers who are going to try to get across and they're not going to be able to get across so they're going to try to skitch through between bikes and it could be the bikes themselves that end up bumping into each other. And what we notice is if there is a slow cyclist, um, a fast bike will actually go into the walking lane to, um, to go in front of the slow bikers, bicyclist. And you think that will get worse? I mean, it sounds like that's happening already. Do you think that will get worse having the piece absolutely. of art there? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And um, the the Biennale has a walk-bike map, and so this will be on it. So that's also going to invite 
more people to the location and just the potential hazards for accidents and possibly something worse. And you also talked about consultation and a lack of consultation. I mean, one of the arguments could be that these are temporary art exhibits. They come and go, and it's not like they're putting in a a permanent art exhibit there. But what kind of consultation would you like to see? Um, The city asked for the sandwich board, which was put up. The sandwich board has no photo of of the proposed sculpture. The city asked uh, the Biennale to put flyers in uh, the residences from Pacific Cove over to Canby Street Bridge. Um, that seems to have happened, but in a very scattered way. Uh, Henley Court, which is beside us to the east, to my knowledge, received no flyers. And residents in Pacific Cove, uh, some say they got them, some say they didn't. So at this point, uh, the Biennale says uh, it's going ahead. It will likely be installed by the end of the month. What do you think is going to happen next? Well, what happens next is um, the city's um, arts program, they have the responsibility to um, ensure that the proposed artwork is appropriate for the site that the exhibition does not negatively impact the current use of the site and to ensure the safety and circulation issues are addressed. And so what we are doing is giving the city's public art uh, committee information about each of those three items. All right. Well, what, Kat, what oh, they, sorry, go what ahead. They will do, sorry, and what they will do is advise city council who will, as I understand it, then give the okay. They will give the licensing. All right. Well, we're going to keep uh, tabs on this and see what happens next with this. Catherine, we'll leave it there, but I really appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. We started the show talking with Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr, talking about a motion that is coming to council, looking at changing the name of Trutch Street in Vancouver because of the very racist history of Joseph Trutch. And that got us thinking about the committee that is in charge of that and how difficult it might be to actually go ahead and change the name of a street. Well, John Atkin joins me now, a local historian also the past co-chair of Vancouver's Civic Asset Naming Committee. John, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, Can we talk a bit, we'll talk a little bit about this particular motion and the fact that it's coming uh, to council soon. Uh, For Mm -hmm. for a little bit of background, though, and I'm hoping you'll be able to fill us in a bit, how do we come up with street names in the first place? (laughs) Um, Well, Since uh, 2012, the City of Vancouver's had the Civic Assets Naming Committee. Uh, Prior to that, it was just a staff committee. And so the city surveyor, you know, would uh, send in a a note that says, I've got a new street coming. I need a name. Tell me what to call it. And the staff would come up with a name. And there wasn't really any sort of, you know, rationale or, or any sort of set of standards. So from 2012 onwards, the Civic Assets Naming Committee uh, was given charge to name things. And so it's a group of volunteers drawn from the community at large, but also um, key members of certain advisory committees. So we have someone sitting uh, from the Urban Aboriginal Advisory, and we have uh, someone from the Multicultural Committee. And the requests come from the city engineer, or sorry, the city surveyor, and 
they're usually development related and we dig into sorry use the present tense um, but the committee digs into uh, history site context um, all manner of things and takes a very long time to come up with uh, what they feel would be a very relevant name and since the committee's um, creation uh, diversity has been right up at the top of the list and so we have provided the first South Asian name on a city city asset, um, the first Chinese-Canadian uh, name on an asset. The Parks Board beat us to it with Sunhop Park um, just a few months prior to one of our things. Um, and so, yeah, diversity is, is sort of the lens that uh, names get created through. But it's a very long and detailed, and I would say very thoughtful process that the committee goes through. I would imagine, because now even if you had a list and a short list of names, there's going to be, I would think, some pretty hardcore vetting that goes in to make sure uh, nobody anywhere is going to be offended, or if there isn't some Mm -hmm. hidden meeting, or it means something awful in a different language, and so many things to consider. Oh, very much. I maintain privately uh, my own list of members of the anti-Asiatic leagues so that we never inadvertently um, you know, have one of those names appear somewhere. And yeah, there's a lot of checking and, and digging that you go into. And yeah, you really strive to, to be as detailed and careful as possible. And, and so that's where, again, we don't create a lot of new streets. And when we talk civic assets, that generally means streets, albeit we named a sewage pumping station down in the River District. Um, so, sorry, what did, what, of, sorry, what did you name the sewage pumping station? Oh, uh, the sewage pumping station is down in the old River District and uh, the old the River District, which was the old white pine uh, sawmill. And throughout that whole development, the sawmill is commemorated with sawmill crescent and things, but the white pine name was lost. So the city engineer said, uh, I get a sewage pumping station that needs a name. So we called it the White Pine uh, Mill Sewage Pumping Station. Oh, all right. <laughs> so, so it sounds like then more recently or since 2012, there's been mm-hmm. that process, a very complex process when it comes to naming streets. And like you said, we don't have that many new streets, but mm-hmm. certainly there are new developments. And sometimes you'll see a new street pop up. In the past, obviously, names were used to put on streets. That's what's being questioned right now. So when you hear calls to change the name of a street, what goes through your mind? Well, I think, well, the first thing that goes through my mind is that we have to understand that anything that we do in Vancouver is through the colonial lens. I mean, the city is a colonial construct. So uh, we're adding stuff to someone else's place. And so we have to view it through that lens first. And then secondly, I guess there's the, there is that arc of settler history. And so uh, you have to look at it through that lens, but I have no trouble with looking at something, you know, and and I think Mr. Church is our poster child for, for, you know, a, a really good racist, but you know, you have to look at his history. You have to look at McBride's history, which he still got his name on a Vancouver school, for instance. And, you know, you were mentioning a variety of different names there earlier in the program from Smythe and, and various things. Uh, 
And I think you really have to take a deep dive into into their past and take a really serious consideration about, yeah, what is this city? What does it represent? And maybe it needs a different lens. No matter how difficult that change might be, I think it's something that we should certainly be taking as a serious sort of change of attitude to this place because, you know, to just sort of say, well, church is there and, oh, it's really difficult to rename the street. Well, it is, but... Tretch was is the last of a number of provincial names um, actually set by the provincial government because that was their property, and they'd subdivided it and were going to try and sell it prior to the city of Vancouver being created. And so Tretch is the last of those names commemorating government officials. So yeah, it can be difficult, and it and it is an incredibly complex process. But I think if we are even serious about contemplating reconciliation, well, then it's a deep dive into what does it, what is this city? What does it mean to live in this place? And then how do you actually live up to what that word uh, entails? And I think we've never engaged in a full audit of what we've named things. And, you know, the recent case with one of the Vancouver schools that was replaced with a new building, but they kept the uh, cornerstone um, which, you know, the school used to be called Cecil Rhodes, and then they put Cecil Rhodes out in the schoolyard, and it's kind of like, uh, maybe a lens through that, like, no, that that needs to go in the basement, and we're lost, right? Yeah, that so, one seemed a bit odd when I was looking at that and seeing that they made the, took the, the, the work of repurposing that and putting it out. I, I kind of wondered if, if that, whoever did that hadn't, didn't realize who Cecil Rhodes was. Yeah, well... I know, and and I think you see. I know it's a, a a cheap way of looking at it, but I think if you do look at say um, places like South Africa or Rhodesia or uh, some of those former British colonies, you know, no one's going to suggest retaining Cecil Rhodes' name as a street, say in Harare, for instance. Um, you know, you you wouldn't go there and say, well, the difficulty of changing the name, it's kind of like, let's get rid of this. Um, And I think that's where I think we have to start is what's on the streets? Who are they? And what were the actions? And if the actions are very significant, like Trutch's or McBride's, you know, because we've got a park named after him as well, Mm -hmm. um, then I think reconsideration and serious consideration and not punted off into, oh, let's review and assess and come up with the possibility of some engagement, because we've done that for far too long anyway. Um, Let's just get on with it and really dig deep and come up with some serious actions and actionable actions, I think, is is the key. Do you think part of the reason, though, or perhaps the whole reason that when we've talked about this in the past, that's exactly what's happened is the, we'll talk about this, we'll have a committee to talk about this, we'll have all of these conversations, but in the end, nothing really changes because it is a huge inconvenience for anybody that lives on these streets for Mm -hmm. actually changing the name and with the idea, as you mentioned, with all of these other streets too, whether you're talking Robson Street, Smythe Street, all of these other streets that that people will have an issue with saying, if you're mm-hmm. going to change Trutch, then you're going to have to change all of these other streets too. Oh, very much. And I think one of the key concerns I have with the mayor's motion as laudable as the idea 
is to make a formal, um, you know, sort of declaration that we need to change that, is that I would hate to see the motion made, the motion passed, everybody goes, yay, we've done some action, because where does that motion go? Well, surprise, it actually goes to the Civic Assets Naming Committee. And so the Civic Assets Naming Committee would then turn around and recommend it. Yes, okay, let's get rid of the trudge name. Where does that go? It, they write a council report. It goes back to council. And then council has to then direct staff to engage in the process of finding out how to change the name. So that could take, you know, quite some time and, and not necessarily to give you the result that you want. If, say, a report comes back and says, well, here's the potential costs, here's this, here's this, here's this, and who's going to pay for everybody's address change? You know, think of... And every business you know, and, that has business cards and letterhead and yeah. everything set up with that address. So if you're serious about this, then you have to find that remediation. You have to find that whole process of, yes, we're going to do this, and we are going to do it as a city to rectify our existence in a colonial construct and, and, be, and be dead serious about it. Um, you know, and there is a renaming policy that council passed um, a few years ago, the previous council, uh, albeit with zero, zero input from the Civic Assets Naming Committee. Hmm. Um, but again, it's sort of that circular loop because 75% of the folks that live or work on the street um, can request a name change, but it comes to the Civic Assets Committee to review, and if they agree, they send it to council. But then that's where the process disappears. And so, you know, if we're going to engage in this, then I think we really have to engage in it in, in a manner that is really meaningful, but it's that deep dive into what it does it mean to be the city of Vancouver on the traditional territories of the three nations that we acknowledge. And I'm not sure just passing a motion because of the... You know, the results that have shown up from, from Kamloops are horrific, but it shouldn't be a total surprise to everybody. And the knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be to change one name on a city street. Because I think, as you've noted, um, in the names that you've brought forward, um, hell, we've still got a street named for Jerry McGear, who, um, the mayor of Vancouver, who should never have anything named after him. In fact, his statue sits in front of City Hall, and that would be one of the first things I'd want removed. So there's a real re-examination of the city and how we mark things that I think we need to engage in. All right. I know we're going to continue having these conversations. John Atkin, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Well, you're more than welcome. Well, as BC's restart plan moves forward and we get closer to being in a position where people are traveling more freely, checking out different neighborhoods, maybe different parts of the province, getting back to farther away places, you might be thinking about booking an Airbnb. 
very popular for a lot of people, but Airbnb has released some new guidelines. Well, the existing, uh, the disruptive gatherings guidelines, they have announced the extension of the party ban, and that ban is going to be in place until at least the end of summer of this year, summer of 2021. This was a ban that was brought in in August of 2020, and it was aimed at stopping the spread of COVID-19 and really stopping people from breaking the rules that are and were in place. Joining me to talk more about this is Nathan Rotman, Airbnb policy team member for Canada and the Northeastern United States. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for inviting me on today. Wanted to talk a little bit more about the extension of the party ban. So this is people, as it sounds, gathering, having parties at Airbnb. What exactly does this extension, what does it involve? So, I mean, we all know that during COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic, that, that there have been, you know, specific restrictions. And we still expect our, our, our guests to follow those restrictions. But in addition to that, um, uh, we, we put in place a party ban actually in advance of the, of the COVID restrictions back in the fall of, of, 20, uh, of 2019. Um, and, uh, and this party ban basically continues on uh, through at least to the end of summer 2021. Uh, basically what it does is ask people not to host events uh, in listings on our platform. We already prohibit our hosts from advertising their their space as a space for events or, or gatherings of any kind. Um, but, but uh, you know, especially during COVID, we've decided to extend that on even further. And how will it be enforced as far as how will you make sure nobody's doing this or breaking this rule? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so there's a couple of tools we have at our, at our disposal. The, the, the first one is obviously is that we, we monitor uh, very closely what's, what's going on on the platform and we stay in close touch with our, with our host community. But in addition, there's a, a number of other tools we've put in place that, that help to, uh, to prevent uh, uh, you know, parties uh, above and beyond just telling our guests uh, about these rules. The first one is uh, a neighborhood support line. If you go to airbnb.ca slash neighbors, uh, you can report uh, if you're a neighbor and you believe that there's a, a party happening in a short-term rental on your street, in your condo, uh, you could certainly report that to us so that we could follow up. There's a, a phone line as well as a, a kind of online form that people can fill out. Further, we actually piloted in Canada in January of last year um, an initiative uh, that's been expanded uh, throughout uh, the U.S., uh, the U.K., France, uh, and elsewhere that restricts any guests under the age of 25 from booking an entire home listing within a close proximity of where they live. Um, so with, that we found that there was an over-indexing of, of folks 20, uh, you know, under the age of 25, and so that policy has proven to be uh, fairly successful uh, for us. Uh, because with the rules, too, that one's a pretty clear one and makes sense. But with the rules changing as far as if we look at BC and the reopening plan where we are allowed to have, I think now, right now it's five people you can have in your house, you can have uh, more people if you're outside. Does that make a difference then? Would that be considered a party if you were renting an Airbnb, say, and had you were you were two people and you had three guests over? So so our, our limit is 16. But we still, you know, we, we do advertise to our hosts and guests what the local public health restrictions are. So those take precedent over or anything on our platform. So our 16 guest cap on reservations remains in effect. But that's really for like, you know, uh, you know uh, me and my sister and her children traveling together to, 
you know, a mountain town and enjoying a, a, a trip together, you know, when that's when that's available, not for the purpose of having uh, a, a party after graduation or, or something like that. Right. Uh, what are the punishments then if somebody, say, does get caught breaking this rule? What happens? So we actually uh, back uh, late last year, uh, we went through a, a manual review of, of listings and actually removed quite a number of, uh, of hosts listings where they had continued to allow gatherings of some kind um, uh, following the, this, this rule change from, from the year prior. Uh, guests who don't adhere to the rules can be, can be removed from the platform and not be permitted to use the platform again. Uh, there's been some litigation in the U.S., um, hasn't happened in Canada, but certainly we, we monitor this very closely. And, and if, if people are causing a nuisance in, in a neighborhood where our listings operate, uh, that's not good for the platform. It's not good for the communities where we operate. And, and our, our platform is built for people to enjoy, enjoy a neighborhood and to go and travel. And what we're finding is certainly this summer, at least the travel trends we're seeing out of the United States at the moment, which you know, we assume will follow here, is that people really want to, you know, see their friends, see their family, and 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 really like get out of cities and enjoy enjoy you know reconnecting with uh, people they haven't seen in some time. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of desire, especially or, or even if it is just uh, in your own province, uh, getting a bit out of your your area. Uh, so it sounds like then, if somebody was to break these rules, uh, does it fall more to is it the person who books and they break the rules, they may be banned from the platform, or is it also if a host goes and books out, uh, is allowing parties, is knowing knowingly booking people that are breaking the rules, could that host be kicked off the pro, uh, the platform? Absolutely. And we, we did this manual review last year. I believe there were about 40 in, in Ontario. There was a number in Quebec, um, in, uh, in Alberta. We went through some manual play, uh, reviews where there had been an over-indexing of problems in the past uh, and reviewed that. It, it hasn't been a, a, an issue uh, that, that's been reported to us much in Vancouver uh, or in British Columbia, but uh, certainly in the rest of Canada, it's something that we've, we've had to deal with more. Uh, so we, we monitored that very closely, but absolutely, hosts can be removed, guests can be removed, uh, uh, both, both, uh, uh, especially if, if they're not adhering to the, the community standards that are, that are in place. All right, but do you, do you know if that's happened at all? And if you don't, that's fine, but do you know if that's happened at all in BC? I don't know in BC specifically. Um, I don't know in BC specifically, sorry. No, no, no problem. Uh, The travel restrictions that are in place as well, and hopefully those are going to be lifted very soon in British Columbia. uh, Are those something that that Airbnb hosts need to be looking at as well in that if somebody books from outside their region where they're not supposed to be traveling, is is the onus on the Airbnb host? Should they be the one saying, well, if you're coming from, if you're breaking a provincial health order by coming here, maybe don't come? Absolutely. Uh, we, have been, uh, we have been communicating all throughout the pandemic uh, with our host community to ensure that they understand any uh, responsibilities that are placed on them by, uh, by the province or by local health orders. Uh, just before the Victoria Day long weekend, we sent a reminder to hosts, letting them know uh, again uh, about the, um, the kind of interregional travel restrictions that were in place in British Columbia. Um, and, and certainly we're looking forward to the return of, of, you know, some normalcy like everyone else and the return to travel because I know people want to, you know, get out of cities or get out of their home community. Um, but all throughout the pandemic, we've been in very close touch with our community, even offering um, a full cancellation policy at the start of the pandemic uh, when this was all new and a surprise to people. 
uh, to ensure that people didn't feel like they needed to travel because they had a, um, uh, you know, a strict cancellation, uh, if they were in, in an event where they, they were going to lose money uh, by not traveling. And so we ensured that there was an option for everyone to be able to cancel at the outside. And is that still in place as we have seen the rules change and the rules do tend to change based on the COVID-19 numbers and that is that still in place that people, even if somebody has a strict cancellation policy, that people can get their money back? Uh, it's not in place right now. I mean, it's up to it's up to the host to set their own cancellation policy. At this point in the pandemic, I think a lot of people are, are aware that there's uh, a moving target in terms of uh, what, what, what the rules are from, from day to day. Uh, and we ask people to stay in close touch uh, to, to, to monitor that. Uh, I'll be honest, I was walking down the street uh, here in Toronto just the other day with my, my dog and ran into a friend who, who said that they had had a, a host cancel on them uh, just recently for an upcoming booking because the restrictions were going uh, uh, further than they had originally expected. So hosts are being really responsible about ensuring that they can, uh, that they're, they're supporting their guests as well because they want to see these people return to their communities at some point when it's safe and, uh, and allowed again. And just to go back to the, the party ban that has been extended. So it's been extended through at least to the end of this summer, the end of summer 2021. What happens at that point? Uh, we'll be reviewing the policy. I mean, we're always reviewing these policies um, to, to, to look for what what is the best way to ensure that we that there is a, as, as limited as possible uh, nuisances or, or the use of the platform for for you know, uh, instances that it's not, it's not meant to be used for. Um, uh, for instance, Halloween of last year, we, we actually banned all one-night bookings to prevent any kinds of, uh, of behavior that, that wouldn't be allowed, especially during COVID, but also on our platform generally. We had a, a similar-ish policy on New Year's Eve uh, 2021, uh, where uh, we were, you know, reminding hosts and guests, or reminding guests of the of the rules that were in place. So we'll keep reviewing that and and updating our policy as time as time goes on. But at some point, it'd be nice to have people be allowed to to, to gather in small numbers in listings in certain settings again. All right, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, Nathan Rotman, we'll <laughs> leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk about the policy. Great, thanks so much for having me on today.